0: everyone maggie here before we dive in just need to give a few quick trigger warnings that this episode deals with themes of sexual and violence including but not limited to rape sexual assault and pedophilia uh child molestation so if any of these are sensitive topics for you please proceed with caution as these are themes that are dealt with heavily in the book and if you can't listen to that we will see you next week with our episode on the sweet farthing by Libba bray and I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just queue up my drums? Thanks. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads.
1: Hello, I am Harmony.
0: I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. What are we talking about today, Maggie? Uh, We are talking about Rebel Angels by Libba Bray, which is the sequel to A Great and Terrible Beauty. Yes, it's number two in the Gemma Doyle trilogy. Which means we're almost done.
1: Oh my God. Maggie's going to be so mean, you guys. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry now. I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry for me. I'm not sorry for Maggie. But it doesn't matter because we're not reviewing the book. We're going to critically read it. So I want to give some context because this is the new thing we're doing. So some context for this book. I thought it would be really cool to look at Michel Foucault's Theory of Power, which essentially states... I'm going to do my best to summarize it for you all. I'm taking this information. I'm not going to read it word for word, but I'm taking it from powercube.net, an article called Foucault Power is Everywhere. So essentially, the big thing that Michel Foucault came up with during the postmodernist era was that power and knowledge equate and also that power does not always have to mean power over somebody, right? And it doesn't always have to be institutionalized power. So I think a good metaphor for this is let's talk a little bit about racial bias, right? Because we've talked about that a little bit on the podcast before. So power doesn't always have to mean that we have Jim Crow laws. Power can sometimes mean that we, in our heads, think of people who look a certain way as being a certain way, right? And then maybe we, we subject ourselves to that same sort of stereotype or thinking model. So it can be very personalized It's not, even though I just used it in a racial context, it's not always a bad thing, Michel Foucault posits, because it allows us rules in society to live by. So one of the interesting things that Michel Foucault does with power in this theory is that he equates power and knowledge as being the same, right? So in truth, knowledge being truth. The idea is that society lives within a set of truths, and these things are true because we've created rules that make them true so we learn about we learn about the Civil War in high school and most of us even in East Coast northern states are told that the Civil War was created not necessarily just because of slavery but because of economics and because the north wanted economic power over the south and it's a war about states rights that's another narrative that happens that narrative, eventually becomes a societal truth. It's been institutionalized already, even though it might not be super factually true if we look at the whole picture. But it's become a societal truth and exists as a truth for a lot of different people because there's been different ways in which we, different rules that we have. It's, talked about in school this way and then people grow up thinking this way, right? So it becomes a societal truth. And so that's kind of the way that I want to look at this book through. And there's some ways that we can do that in a specifically feminist lens. One of the reasons I want to look at Rebel Angels from the lens of power theory is because power is so talked about and this idea of power versus freedom is talked about. And it's not always talked about in a negative way. Some of our characters, some of the big reveals that happen, and some of our most beloved characters use power and force. And it's not always directly demonized. They're still sympathetic. And sometimes... Even when they're using power and force, it's like said it's good in the text, right? We have Anne with her singing. That is a type of power. So that's what I'm thinking about contextually for this book. And let's break down Foucault's theory on a feminist wavelength. Foucault came out and he was like, oh. Power doesn't just have to be institutionalized. It can also be highly personalized. It exists in our everyday social interactions. It exists as knowledge. And feminists were like, oh, this is groundbreaking shit. And, a lot of people took that and implemented it into their own theories. So some of the ways they did that was talking about how women themselves end up institutionalizing power through beauty standards, right? And how that becomes some sort of knowledge. And then one of the other things, one of the other interesting theories that came out from Foucault's work was about Foucault has this idea about subjugation. And so this allowed feminists to see how women could subversively work within power structures for empowerment a great example of this. There's like a new bimbo movement going on right now. I don't know if you all have seen this, but there's a lot of people who are calling themselves bimbos and doing it in an empowering way. Or when where people take back the word queer. These are all subversive ways to play into these stereotypes within the already existing structures that end up defining us. Because this is what we are told that we are. And so sometimes there can be empowerment within getting that definition. And I think that's something this text plays with too. And we will look into that more when we look into how Kartik thinks about his destiny versus how Gemma thinks about free will. All right, Miss Mags, having known that context, do you have anything you want to add or any questions you want to ask?
0: Nah, Harmony did the research on Foucault. I'm just here for the ride, y'all.
1: You understand though? Sure. No, that's the wrong answer, Maggie. If you don't understand, then we need to break it down because then the listeners won't understand.
0: No, I get where you're coming from. I think also something that this book plays with with power is personal gain as well. I I think especially with the magic system. But then it also gets played with even farther than that, because it's not just personal gain. It's also about being able to have the power to imagine a world where women and girls can do and be whatever they want. So it becomes a dream of a different power structure, which I think is really interesting when we're talking about subverting the power in a Foucaultian way because it's not the desire for a lack of power structures or a lack of knowledge. It's a desire for a different set of all of the societal rules that empowers different people. And from Gemma's perspective, it doesn't necessarily, at least explicitly, mean, you know, disenfranchising others. But we see from her personal biases, she has a argument with Kartik at a point in this book after she makes a really insensitive racial comment to him that the dreaming of one person with power means that no matter what power structure they create, somebody's going to be disenfranchised.
1: (laughs) Yes. Which I think Foucault, I don't know enough about Foucault's work to say this with true authority, but Foucault is also interesting because Foucault, as I said before, doesn't always see power as a bad thing and believes that it's a great way for production. He believes power produces. That's his exact word, which I'm sure you can apply a Marxist lens to and critique that way. There are a lot of things that are fucked up about the theory, but I think it's an interesting place to start. And I think that that was a good point, the fact that somebody is always going to be disenfranchised. But also another thing in his work specifically, he doesn't look at large power structures that are at play, which I think Maggie and I are definitely going to have to do because I think that you have to do that to be truly feminist in your criticism.
0: I agree. We're just using Foucault's power theory as a jumping off point here. I would say in order to have a more well-rounded feminist lens on this, I think you have to go outside of sort of this idea of power structure. But I do think that there is almost playing off of what he was saying. I feel like there is a societal tension, a societal truth about power, where we talk about individuals being empowered, right? And how that's a good thing and how knowledge is power is a good thing at an individual level. But then simultaneously, when you take that and make it a system that's when you see the negative effects of it. So there's a tension here that I think this book actually really plays with a lot when we're talking about Gemma and her friends just wanting to be empowered. But in gaining that for themselves, they're setting into play and messing with larger power structures that still affect not only them, but also other people. So I think there's a lot of interesting layers there that we can sort of peel back on the onion.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to start with a passage on 277. Are you cool with that, Miss Mags?
0: Yeah, I'm down. Oh, no, I'm not. Because we should probably tell the people what this book is actually about. So essentially this book follows relatively closely after the events of the first book, where at the end of the first book, Pippa dies. And so all three of the living friends have to kind of go back to school and really contend with a new worldview because of it. And the book opens with the idea that Gemma is really not comfortable going back to the realms. There's a lot of trauma there for her because she was alone with Pippa when Pippa died, you know, all of this good stuff. So ultimately what happens is right before their winter break, break essentially right before christmas Gemma decides to give the girls the christmas present of going back to the realms and they find that pippa's ghost essentially is still around and kicking and so Gemma goes back to london with her family with tom and felicity lies so that she can also bring anne to london so that anne's not stuck at school and essentially we get this two we get a snapshot of this two-week break that the girls have where while they're in london they discover a lot about what's happening with the Order, a lot about what's happening with Cersei, and they do a lot of magic. That makes very little sense, but that's a different podcast.
1: Yeah, they do a lot of magic, and it's fun. I think, I don't know, I'm not very good at looking at magic structures and whether or not they work or not, but I think the idea is that the magic is more unpredictable, right? So it's more unpredictable and it's more powerful and easily accessible now that all of the rules have been broken. Before we get into our theory of power, I do want to say, I didn't remember that this book, that it actually took place during Christmas, and right now we're recording this on December 18th, I'm finally, finals are done. It just snowed in new york city finally i'm finally ready for the christmas spirit and i just i love victorian christmas ghost novels i forget that that's a thing And it's just so cool. It's just so cool, Maggie. And we we did a ghost novel last Christmas, too.
0: Yeah, we did do a ghost novel last Christmas. I don't know. There's just something about Christmas and ghosts, you know. Charles Dickens has really conditioned us to expect it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but it's not just that. I mean, it was the whole Victorian era. And then also I know from my witchcraftiness, the idea of solstice is supposed, because it's winter solstice, right? During solstices, the realm between worlds is supposed to be, like, lifted. It's kind of like Halloween that way. So, spirits are supposed to be able to pass more easily. And it's just so cool. I've been listening to this podcast, not to get too off track. <laughs> I've been listening to this podcast called Christmas Past while I finished up my finals because I just really wanted to get into the Christmas spirit. And there's a lot of Victorian ghost tales there because ghosts and Christmas is just so synonymous. So, I like that. Okay. Do we want to get into the passage where the name is? Yeah. Take me
0: to page 277.
1: Miss Moore leans forward to read the brass plate beneath the painting. Artist unknown, circa eighteen o one. A host of rebel angels. She quotes what sounds like poetry. To reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. John Milton, Paradise Lost, Book One. Have you ever read it? No, I say blushing. Miss Worthington, Miss Bradshaw, Miss Moore asks. They shake their heads. Gracious, what is to become of the empire when we do not read our best English poets? (laughs) And then that goes on for a hot sack. But just to give everyone as a summary, that was the title of the book. Gemma finds a painting. She's with Miss Moore, who, spoiler alert, is the bad guy. She is Cersei. But we don't know this at this point. So she's in a museum with Felicity and Anne, and they're all looking at these paintings. And Gemma finds one, and the colors are very loud. And she's not quite sure if she likes it or not because it makes her uncomfortable. And it turns out that it's a painting of Lucifer trying to to gain more power from God because he was denied something. Because Lucifer, some Christian mythology, used to be an angel. He wanted more power. And then there was a war between the angels, and all of the angels that were on Lucifer's side essentially went to hell and became demons, and Lucifer is the king of hell now. So that's how Satan came to be. Now you know. But there's a cool thing that Miss Moore says somewhere around this time. Here, I will start here on page 278. I wonder, Miss Moore muses. Yes, Miss Moore, and prompts? What if evil doesn't really exist? What if evil is something dreamed up by man, and there is nothing to struggle against except our own limitations? The constant battle between our will, our desires, and our choices. But there is real evil, I say, thinking of Cersei. Miss Moore gives me a curious look. How do you know? We've seen it, Anne blurts out. Felicity coughs and gives Anne an indelicate elbow to the ribs. Miss Moore leans in close. You're quite right. Evil does exist. My heart skips a beat. Is this it? Will she confess something to us here and now? It's called finishing school. (laughs) And then Miss Moore goes on to try and explain why we should feel sympathy for Lucifer, which actually happens on page 277. And the quote is... she says of Lucifer. True, but he wasn't content to serve. He wanted more. He had all he could ask for, didn't he, Anne asks? Exactly, Miss Moore states. He had to ask. He was dependent upon someone else's whim. It's a terrible thing to have no power of one's own, to be denied. So I think this kind of gives us a good setup. To the novel, in addition to having our book's title in it, which is always fun or cringy, depending on who you are. In addition to that, it's directly talking about the idea of desire, the idea of power, and the idea of questioning your structure. And I think that's really important because it sets us up for a few things. It tells us that Miss Moore is kind of an amoral character, which we've already gotten hints of in the first book. It also creates an interesting parallel between Gemma, who has all of the power, and her two friends, Felicity and Anne, who are very dependent on her for power in a sort of way that God and the angels work.
0: I think it's also important to say that for Anne and Felicity, their desire for Gemma's power manifests almost in two different ways. Felicity specifically wants the magic and wants to be able to access the realms, while Anne is more concerned most of the time With real world implications of power, of class, of beauty, of marriage perspectives, because that's the 1800s and that's just kind of the way things were back then. So this desire for power and the way that Gemma sort of wrapped up in having it comes out in multiple different ways, depending on the character she's interacting with.
1: Yeah, that's a really important point. And Felicity, too, I think, more than Anne, wants power in a way that is, I guess, less socially acceptable, but more similar to how it's structured in her world in that her father is a Navy hero, a Navy admiral, right? And she just constantly wants strength. And she has a lot of admiration for her father. But we also know that he is subject to using his force over others in a violent way, which we'll talk about later. I think Felicity is also more drawn to that, right? She lives within this structure. And so she wants the ultimate power for her, which means power in a violent way. I, yeah,
0: it's power's protection for her a lot of the time.
1: Yes, but I think in the first book, we see instances in which it's not just power as protection. I think it's power as protection, yes, but I also think that for her, that means force.
0: I agree with you. I just think that in this book, especially, we see her often use that force to protect herself or protect her friends.
1: Yeah, Felicity is an interesting character who we'll look at more often. But yeah, that's interesting. I didn't notice that. You're totally correct and mostly wants the power for real world things she feels like she has less choice than the other girls which in some ways is true but power works and this is another Foucault point that came about apparently doesn't necessarily have to be over one another because it's interdisciplinary right it's intersectional everyone has their own sort of power and restrictions and rules i don't know so i was thinking that we could look at each character which we've already kind of done and do sort of a power analysis on them what do you think about that miss mags
0: yeah i think that would be a really interesting way to sort of break this down okay which
1: character are you feeling like you want to start with
0: miss maggie I always want to start with Kartik because the three girls and I think Miss Moore are very entwined at the end. Like they're all of their desires for power. So I think we should almost start with the characters that are are sort of less wrapped up in that in some ways (laughs) and then move in deeper. Okay. All right. So let's start with Kartik. So I have a good quote.
1: So page 375 is my other big quote that I thought we had to read this episode. Kartik and Gemma are going to an opium den to go save Gemma's dad because he's addicted to opium. And an Indian man is there and he sees Kartik with Gemma and he's like, Oh, you're an Englishman's dog. And Kartik ignores that, but hearing this guy say that in front of Gemma, Gemma like now realizes that there are racial things at play in her relationship with Kartik. And so she's like, I just want you to know that I don't think you're you're a dog at all. And Kartik's like, this is his response on P- page 375. Actually, it starts at 374. Gemma, what that man said. I stop, unsure of how to continue. What I mean is, I hope you know that I do not feel that way. Kartik's face hardens. I am not like those men. I am not like those men. I am Rakshana, a higher caste. But you are also Indian. Those are your countrymen, are they not? Kartik shakes his head. Fate determines your caste. You must accept it and live according to the rules. You can't really believe that. I do believe it. That man's misfortune is that he cannot accept his caste, his fate. And then Gemma contemplates this for a little while. Kartik keeps his eyes on the room. You cannot change your cast. You cannot go against fate. That means there is no hope of a better life. It is a trap. That is how you see it, he says softly. What do you mean? It can be relief to follow the path that has been laid out for you, to know your course and play your part in it. But how can you be sure that you are following the right course? What if there is no such thing as destiny, only choice? Then I do not choose to live without destiny, he says with a slight smile. He seems so sure while I feel nothing but uncertainty. Do you ever have doubts about anything? His smile vanishes. Yes. All right. So first of all, I think it's apparent from this book that (laughs) Dick doesn't actually end up feeling that way. I think he ends up choosing choice. But what do you think about that idea, Maggie, that rules give us comfort and that our places give us
0: comfort? Well, first of all, I do want to push back a little bit against your ultimate choice situation because Gemma asks him that at the end of the novel and he does say unless my fate was to break with the Rakshana. So I don't know that he's necessarily totally tossed this idea out the window. So I do think that that's one aspect of it. I do think that we start to see him potentially question it a little bit, but it's not like it's entirely shaken from him. To address your original question, on the one hand, I think that there is some truth to this. I think that in some cases that's why people find religion in general so comforting, is that there's this set of rules, there's this set of standards, and if you follow them, like you're gonna live a good life. And then like, ultimately, things will be okay. There's this set of comfort. On the other hand, this passage strikes me as being very complicated as well. Because while Kartik is treated poorly in England, he does also talk about the fact that because he's Rakshana, he's of a higher caste. And sometimes when I hear people talk about the fact that fate just will take care of anything, I really think about the fact that that person probably has a lot of privilege in some ways, because there's just a that Things will work out and it will be taken care of. And there's no use to struggle against the things that you can't change because stuff isn't that bad, which is complicated because, again, we're talking about a brown person in England where the power dynamics of the people that he's working for and, like, surrounded by are more complicated. But in his mind, he's in a high caste. He's in a place of privilege. And so why would he want to challenge his fate to a certain extent when he's been dealt this hand? And Gemma, and we talked about this in the first episode a little bit, too, about how their relationship is kind of complicated when it comes to, like, thinking about privilege and bias and things like that. But Gemma I think makes valuable points here when she talks about the fact that a woman will never be in parliament in her mind at this time and things like that and how to be a woman is to be powerless or how to be born in the a lower class in England is to be powerless and thinking about the sort of more invisible caste system as she describes it as being in England and how essentially she ultimately thinks that's a of bullshit because she believes that the people should have the power to like change their circumstances which struck me as interesting coming from Gemma because she I, I don't want to say besides being a woman <laughs> like it isn't really difficult to Be a woman and have that kind of just be like end stop. But like she comes from a higher class, she comes from a wealthy family and a wealthy background. And in the previous book and in a lot of her interactions even with Anne in this book has shown very little self-awareness sometimes in that sense and so on the one hand this was a huge moment of clarity I think but on the other hand she still isn't fully grasping it which makes sense right I think it would be more suspicious as a character if she has one conversation and then is totally enlightened that's just not how people or these conversations and circumstances work but it is a place where I think you see Gemma starting to become more Self aware. And that informs her feelings about power throughout the rest of the novel. And I hope to potentially see more of this growth in the next novel because I feel like it made Gemma, for me, a more interesting character to see her be a little bit more self aware. Sorry, that was a really long winded answer to your question, but I, I feel like it's complicated and I feel like it was purposefully complicated. And I appreciate that about this book because while it doesn't handle a lot of these sensitive topics perfectly, it does at least, it doesn't. Double it down, right? Presents these things as complex and stuff that you need to pick apart. And I think that is commendable about it, because that's true. That's how real life works. These situations are really complicated when you're dealing with the multiple different aspects of people's identities
1: yes yes I agree I agree and I do think too it's almost like Libba Bray almost 20 years ago was listening to our podcast and then decided that she was going to start fixing some of the issues with the first book but also I think that's a hallmark of her writing having now finished the Diviner series which is much more recent that series too started off with some problems it was much better than A Great and Terrible Beauty but it started off with some problems and then each book gets delves more and more into them and ends up it ends up making you think and ends up coming up with better solutions each time
0: this might be a little bit of a tangent but this is something that i was actually thinking about recently with a friend based off of a different sci-fi fantasy book series that i read which on the one hand series i think can be really useful because they can unpack conversations like this but you know i do also wonder sometimes if there is a little bit of a disservice that's done when these conversations don't get unpacked at all in introductory books or even secondary books because People who don't feel well represented or who just don't like the way things were interpreted in that first book, then never get the chance. If they decide not to continue the series, you don't ever get the chance to, like, unpack those things and, like, see them be dealt with and see some of that problem solving happen. And I don't necessarily think that that makes series or handling things in that way necessarily bad, but I do think that it can be a disservice versus like standalone books who have to put all their shit, all their problems out there in the open and then fucking deal with it by page 400. I really reflected on that in this book as well while I was reading it. I was like, man, I really think A Great and Terrible Beauty would have been a better book if we had moved some of this self-reflection and character growth from this book to the other one. So you can see see some some more hope for these characters, I guess, in that first installment, if that makes sense, which is like waxing philosophical, I guess, but it is just a trend I've really noticed recently in books published in 2000 and also books that started to be published in 2018 and 2019. So like it's a continuing thing in publishing that I am noticing and contending with as a reader.
1: Yeah, I mean, not to also get too off topic. But I think part of that too, is once your book is published, you have the opportunity for feedback, right? I think growth is always a good sign from an author. And I imagine I don't know what the feedback was for Libba Bray for either of these series. But I imagine that this is an opportunity for her to like learn and grow and be like, okay, I can do this better. And I do think it makes sense for historical series as well, right? Because you have to plant that character development somewhere. But I agree that, like, had this been done earlier overall, the product would be better and more people would have been able to enjoy it. So, <laughs> but to get back to Kartik, we know that he was resistant to question power structures, right? We also know that he has living in England, you know, he experiences racism very directly. And we see that. In this book with Tom, we see that with Gemma realizing that she can't be with Kartik because he's Indian and like having that self-realization and self-awareness, even though she's not about to fix it. Yeah, and we see that with various side characters' interactions with him. So we see that with the Rakshana as well, because we know that Kartik's never actually going to like have a higher role in the Rakshana. We see him push back against that power by eventually betraying the Rakshana, by questioning his orders to kill Gemma. How else do we see him interact with power?
0: I think we also see him interact with power in a more privileged circumstance when we see there's a lot of scenes in this book where Gemma has to be really careful about where she goes with Kartik. And it's not just because he's Indian and she's an English girl. It's because he's a man and she's a girl. And there's lots of places that Kartik can go that she can't or that she has to be extra careful in. So I think that a place where we don't necessarily see Kartik grow necessarily, but we do see him interact with that power structure is those moments of realization when he's talking to Gemma, when he's coaching her through these situations, and when he's thinking about the fact that I can do this because of the body I have, essentially, and how people view me as masculine, and you can't because you're a lady and you're viewed as feminine and so all of this stuff happens. I do think that we see him push back against that a little bit, in the sense that as much as he's aware of, like, the danger to Gemma's reputation, which, to be fair, given the historical time period, is something to be considered, you know, and dangerous for him as well. And dangerous for him as well, for sure. But we do also see him trust her enough to do things, anyways. I think, especially in the scene where Gemma's father is in the opium den, and Kartik is initially looking for Tom, and is so, essentially like, is sitting there like, this isn't for a lady to deal with. This is man's work. Gemma's like, nope, Tom's not here, so you just have to take me, and we have to go deal with this. And I don't want to say he lets her in the sense that it's not necessarily a permissive thing, but he doesn't try and stop her. Right? I think. That There are small ways that we do see Kartik push up against this traditional power structure by respecting Gemma's autonomy in a way that we don't see other male characters respect her autonomy in other parts of this book, or that we don't see a lot of male characters respecting females' safety and autonomy outside of Gemma as well.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I do also think though, at the beginning of this book, which is a little hazy for me because I started reading this. Ages ago and just finished it today. Gemma, Gemma sets the power dynamic differently. She stands up to Karthik at the beginning. And so I think that he's forced to contend with the fact that she is powerful and that he can't just bully her into submission.
0: And also that he needs to respect her boundaries because the scene that you're talking about, it's like kind of comic relief to a certain extent, I think. But the scene that you're talking about is that Kartik is waiting for her in her room at Spence while she's by herself. And through this weird sort of series of mishaps, he doesn't identify himself until she's already undressing. And she puts her fucking foot down and she's like, absolutely not. This is not how this is going to go. And this is not how you're going to treat me. This is inappropriate." And I think you're totally right that that scene ends up setting a lot of the tone for the way their relationship grows or doesn't grow throughout this book. Because we do see the setup of a love triangle a little bit (laughs) in this novel. So in some ways, Kartik's still just as important as he was in the first novel. And in some ways, he isn't around quite as much all the time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. All right. Is there anything else we want to talk about with Kartik? Or do we want to move on?
0: I think I want to move on. Who else do you want to talk about? I'm interested in talking about Miss Moore, Miss What's Her Face, and the three girls.
1: Miss McLeathy?
0: Yeah, that one. Oh, okay. I hadn't planned anything for Miss Macleethy. All right. So do you want to start on Miss Moore then? Maybe we can talk about Miss Moore and Miss Macleethy simultaneously because they're sort of intertwined ultimately in the sense that Gemma thinks Miss Macleethy is Cersei the whole time and actually she's of the order and Gemma thinks Miss Moore is potentially of the order the entire time, but she's actually Cersei. So this whole mix up, I think A, really has a lot to do with power, but B, colors the way that both characters are trade the entire time
1: I think that makes sense I think Miss McLeathy is interesting to me because we see we thought of the order as just being like this ultimate good and in this novel we really get to break down the fact that their rules and their systems ended up being oppressive to many in the realm and that it wasn't fair they hoarded
0: all of the power for themselves And their justification was, if we didn't, somebody else would, essentially, which reminds me very much in certain ways of lessons one I think could potentially glean from being oppressed in the real world, so to speak. I could see that being a woman in such an oppressive time could potentially lead you to this conclusion. From a modern perspective, we know that that doesn't necessarily have to be true.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the same justification for the reason that the US ends up starting wars in
0: tons of countries
1: and has such a big army and why we have nuclear bombs to begin with, right? That It's all that idea that if we don't have this force, then somebody else is going to, and we have to be ready for that. And in doing that, they end up hoarding a lot, and it doesn't end up being distributed equally. I think for me that's interesting, because by the end of this book, the Order isn't ever reinstated as a good guy. Gemma's wary of them now. And part of that could be her natural dislike for Miss McLeathy, but I think also it's the fact that the Order isn't as great as we thought, and that's somewhat, I think for me, cast Miss Moore in a more sympathetic light.
0: I agree. No, totally. And I do think, you know, there is Cersei's whole thing, right? Sarah's whole thing this whole time is the fact that she had power and felt like it was ripped away from her. And I can see and sympathize and understand how that would be a traumatic experience, right? To like, feel like for once in your life you have agency in this magical world in a way that you don't necessarily in the real world and to have that taken from you Not that that justifies her actions, but I do think that she's a sympathetic villain. And I think that this book extra sets that up because we see things like that scene in the museum. And we see things like her talking to the girls and like sympathizing with Anne in other ways. And it really sets up a nuanced perspective. I think what's interesting, though, about what happens with the Order is that it's not necessarily that... The order's thrown away so much as Gemma's just decided that she's going to make a new one, <laughs> which I think really plays into this whole idea of the power and societal truths with the Foucaultian, Foucault's power theory.
1: Yeah. Do you feel as though her new order is more equitable? Because it definitely brings more people into the fold. But the people she's bringing into the fold are there because they directly Benefited her. And like, yes, she's prioritizing trust. But one of the things that doesn't necessarily relate to this, but kind of does, and is something I had issues with while reading The Diviners and now have issues with now- while revisiting this series, is that Gemma isn't ever actually advocating for non hierarchy because then that's anarchy, right? And that's a bad word. And anarchy is inherently bad, and people need rules. People need rules and then we need hierarchy as a part of those rules. We can't just have a completely democratic system.
0: No, I totally agree with you. She's trying to change the hierarchy, I think, in a way that she thinks is more equitable. But you're right that the way she's stacking it, you know, it just prioritizes different people rather than being actually equitable. I do think though, it's kind of hard for me to answer that question right now, because I have no idea how this new order is actually going to play out yet, because I haven't read the third book. And this book really ends with this whole idea that we're starting a new world order, essentially, and talking about the new players that are going to be a part of it and everything. And we haven't yet seen what the consequences of those actions are necessarily going to be. We've seen a little bit of it, right? Like I think it's implied that the author wants you to think that it's going to be better, specifically because of the Gorgon character, who I found really interesting. The Gorgon decides ultimately that she likes Gemma, Gemma sets her free from a sort of like pseudo slavery and the Gorgon decides that she's just going to stick with Gemma and help her out anyways. And I think that through that character's endorsement of Gemma and what's going on, given the fact that she had been so thoroughly and terribly oppressed by the order previously, we're supposed to believe as readers that things actually will be better and more equitable. But reading from the lenses that you and I always read with, I'm Very skeptical of the truth of this because, as you said, it's still hierarchy. It's just ordered differently.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Although I do think one of the big, the most radical things before we move on to Miss Moore or get further into Miss McLeathy that Gemma does do is, and she ends up giving power to the people who are thought to have the least amount of power, which is the Untouchables. And I think that's a big deal. So, do we want to keep talking about Miss Is Are there other things you want to talk about that aren't related necessarily to the order?
0: I think also something that's interesting with Miss McLeathy is that she abuses her power as a teacher as well which I think is interesting like thinking about real world dynamics it's implied heavily that she drugs Gemma in some way at the be towards the beginning of the novel and she has weird relationships with Mrs. Nightwing, who we don't see for a ton of time in this book because it doesn't take place at Spence for the most part. We see Miss McLeafie and her weird power structures that she got from the Order. She's not afraid to abuse those in the real world either, both as an adult, as a person of like, at least middle class standing, as the teacher in a teacher-student relationship, which is extra complicated at this boarding school because the teachers aren't just teachers. They're also in many ways the caregivers too. And we also see it in a class sense in her her brief interactions with Bridget. So I think that as much as we see her as a tool to paint the order as being bad, there's also to me a real sense of the fact of like, Miss McLeafy is not afraid to use whatever power she does have, even if she's being oppressed in some ways, as a weapon against others, essentially as long as she feels like she's in the right. So Gemma and her distrust and dislike of her, I hope is going to also lead to some more of this real world reform, or at least reforming Gemma's thinking about it in the next book, because we finally see in this book, Gemma have a real suspicion of figures of authority for multiple different reasons. And, and we'll get to that when we talk about her. But Miss McLeafy and her sort of nefarious <laughs> ways, essentially, is a really big part of that. And it's not just because of the magical side of things.
1: So in some ways that like, that makes her like not that much different than Miss Moore, but the big difference is that Miss Moore kills people. <laughs> Which is like student in fact. I don't I just I don't know what to do with Miss Moore. It's been eleven years
0: and I still don't know what to do with Miss Moore. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess we should transition to talking about her. So like really the big, the big, big plot twist in this book is that Miss Moore is Cersei and she's been taking advantage of the trust of the girls the entire time. And we also find out that she's been moving from school to school to school and like trying to use these girls that she finds at each school to access the realms and essentially drives them insane. (laughs) I'm sure there might be a more sensitive way to phrase that but I'm, words are failing me at this point. So I'm sorry if that's the case. But like, that's ultimately what happens is that they have a really hard time with hallucinations and they have a really hard time distinguishing the realms from reality. They have a hard time being really coherent. And we see this through Nell, who Gemma is sort of trying to figure out what happened to her the whole time. Nell's kind of the mystery and she's a victim of Miss Moore the entire time.
1: Yes, One of the interesting parts of this book to me is that we find out that Cersei loved Nell to a certain extent. She didn't want Nell to die, even though Nell couldn't bring her to the realms. And so it implies that there's still some humanity there. But also, I guess I want to look at her philosophical underpinnings, because to me, they almost seem Ayn Rand-ish or like Nietzsche. Even though she's an advocate for choice, which to me seems inherently anti hierarchical but instead for her it ends up being incredibly hierarchical because the only way for her to have absolute freedom and choice is for her to be at the top of the power structure and controlling everything.
0: I think that this ties back to what we were initially talking about with my reflections, I guess, on Foucault's power structure in the sense that we talk about individual empowerment, but that the way those conversations sometimes translate to systemic power is complicated and not great because we want the individual to be empowered, but... A lot of the time, given the way our society is set up, that means in some ways reinforcing, like, this level of systemic power. And I feel like Miss Moore is the epitome of this. She wants choice, but she's not worried about making that systemic. She is totally in this individual empowerment mindset, and like, fuck everyone else. She doesn't care. This isn't for her. Her underpinnings as a villain, so to speak, unlike, I think, a lot of tropes that we've seen recently with villains isn't I'm doing this because I think life will actually be better for everyone if this happens she just wants it for herself yeah and also like Miss Moore too
1: I imagine comes from a more privileged position than Anne does she was also a student at Spence which implies that she had as much wealth as Gemma at least and like She has magic now, even though she can't access it because she, you know, did something weird with her spirit. So she's got, like, dark creatures and that helps her. So, like, yeah, I don't know. (laughs)
0: She, I think, talks about choice in that sense, in the same way that a lot of people talk about choice, where it's like, you could do X horrible thing that you really hate doing. Or you could die, essentially, that's choices that people talk about a lot of times, especially in our society, I think, especially talking about healthcare, for example, and what isn't recognized (laughs) by the people who make those arguments in real life. And I think also by Miss Moore in the story is that a choice like that is not actually a choice and Anne on the one hand does I think really suffer from and Gemma frankly gets really frustrated with her because she does have such a fear of being disliked and will just appease anyone and finds it really really difficult to stand up for herself and what she believes in in that sense so like on the one hand I do think that it's still it's not baseless advice but it is naive advice because of the fact that sure it might not be her only choice. But in the 1800s, for example, if she doesn't want to go that route, her other option is maybe something like prostitution, which totally support consensual sex workers in 2020 but that is definitely a much different context in the mid 1800s when lots of women who didn't like society were essentially forced to do this job in extraordinarily unsafe conditions both from sexual violence and also from disease and like that's kind of what Miss Moore is getting at because this is a YA novel I don't think that it necessarily goes so far to imply that but like reading the context and reading the time that is at least part of what Miss Moore has to mean right and in that sense again maybe you have a choice but it's a really fucking terrible one
1: (laughs) yeah and also like Miss Moore too I imagine comes from a more privileged position than Anne does she was also a student at Spence which implies that she had as much wealth as Gemma at least and like she has magic now even though she can't access
0: it because she did something weird with her spirit so she's got like dark creatures and that helps her I think also, Miss Moore ultimately made the choice to teach. And it was because it was a means to another end, sure. But even if your path is set out for you in a way that doesn't end up in a horrible position, right? Like in the mid 1800s, being a governess was not something to be sniffed at. There's many people who would have been of even lower classes than Anne, who would have probably killed for an opportunity in a position like that to be warm and safe and fed with a secure job. But when it's your only path and your only choice or it feels that way, that feels suffocating. And I think that that's what Anne's problem is that Miss Moore and the other girls don't
1: see. What do we think though about the philosophical underpinnings, not just of that, but just of this idea of, the only person that I can rely on is me. And like, I, it, I guess it's, it's ambition, really. It's just ambition to the extreme. And is that ever okay? And does it become more okay because it's coming from a sympathetic kind of likable female character? And how do we feel about that?
0: See, I really dislike the fact that I feel like Libba Bray vilified ambition in this because I feel like often that's used as an anti-feminist tactic. Not to say that I think this novel is inherently anti-feminist or anything. I just think that as an author, she kind of fell into like a trope that's kind of a trap, so to speak. That was also very common in the early 2000s, to be fair, where she made ambition, such a large part of her female villains underpinnings that it then throws shade and bad light on kind of any ambitious female really you know it also makes you think a lot about Felicity I think there's still a lot of ties I think between because Felicity also wants power yeah and the same kind of power that Miss Moore is looking at and Felicity also explicitly says many times the fact that she is endlessly frustrated that she can only access all of this through Gemma and she just wishes she could do it herself which is a lot of what Sarah talks about in her diary in the first book and I think that it makes you look at Felicity with some level of undeserved suspicion to a certain extent, especially and we'll talk about this more in a second I'm sure, but especially when you understand more about Felicity's childhood and the trauma that she's endured.
1: Yeah, which I don't know how I feel about that depiction of a person who's adult with that t- sort of trauma as well. So d- is there anything else you want to talk about with Miss Moore or do we want to move on to Anne or Felicity?
0: I think we should move on to Felicity mostly because I do really want to talk about sexual violence in this book and how I think it was handled pretty fucking poorly, to be honest. Yeah, I agree. Go ahead. Gemma routinely thinks about Felicity as being a mystery. Gemma just can't figure out what makes Felicity tick a lot of the time. And some of it has to do with this need to protect herself and like self-preservation. And in some ways, this need for force and almost violence as sort of the underpinnings of all of that, as Harmony and I talked about before. <laughs> and you find out through an overheard conversation that Felicity has with her parents' new ward, Polly, that it's because Felicity's father... Lost at her or raped her. Yeah, is a pedophile. And it ends up being extremely glossed over. It's barely mentioned. Felicity herself... It's shown to have really conflicted feelings about everything and holds feelings of guilt and, like, is her fault. And Gemma tries to sort of tell her that it's not. Uh, And I don't think that, like, there's anything wrong with Felicity's feelings or reaction to any of that. It was the fact that the book just sort of dropped it in as this plot bomb, essentially, to, like, explain the reason that Felicity is the way she is and then just leaves it. It's never actually unpacked in any way. And then there's also a scene, too, where Gemma, and this is like of a much lesser, I think, it's less icky because it's not pedophilia at the very least. But there's also a scene where Gemma's like drunk and is almost taken advantage of. And when she asks the boy to stop, he says no. And the only, or he he ignores her essentially. And the only reason he ends up stopping is because Gemma has a vision where like it looks like she's having a fit essentially. He panics and is like, oh, holy fuck, we ain't doing this anymore. And that's also just dropped in there and never unpacked. And Gemma, essentially doesn't think about it ever again. And I think given some historical context on the one hand men were expected to take more liberties like that and it was expected for women to like not go into dark rooms with them. And Like there was a lot of internalized misogyny at this time period that put all the blame and onus on women. So like maybe I guess it might make sense that Gemma would never think about it again. like just these two huge moments of sexual violence one of which is like fucking atrociously heinous and it's just dropped in there for plot and never talked about again.
1: Yeah, and it's really three because we get another victim from the little girl that the captain is doing it to right now, right? And Felicity's protection ends after Christmas.
0: And all she's able to do is they lock your door.
1: I don't want to speak for victims of sexual assault. But I will say that like the victims in this case, whether it be Gemma even or Felicity or Polly, like the fact that Felicity wants to protect her family, I don't think I think that Polly needs protection. But I don't think that's inherently wrong. Like I do think it's all the book's handling, right? The fact that Gemma, that this happens to Gemma and Gemma doesn't call it rape, that makes sense. You know, that fact that she's like more consumed with everything going on in the temple and that that's more traumatic for her, that's fine. I think for me, the big thing is that this is the, this is the explanation for Felicity's character being so power hungry, which also I think if done better might have been okay, right? Because like there's room for people to deal with things however the, how they deal with it that's fine that's the way real people are yeah it's just it's never impact
0: (laughs) feels like it's used as a plot device and that's it feels like there was never intended to be any real conversation about it or any real impact I thought about this a lot with Gemma's character but there's a real lack of consequences in this book and I think that in some ways this is A really prime example of that. Not that in the 1850s I would expect legal consequences or anything, but just like, it's just, it just gets to be like thrown in there as a plot device and that's it.
1: Yeah, and I think too, the idea thought behind that a little bit is to make Felicity more likable. That I also like, I don't think Felicity needs that as a character. It's okay for a woman to just be ambitious and to want her own power.
0: And people don't necessarily have to go through something really fucking traumatic to want those things.
1: Yeah. And also the whole trope of you having, of having to deal with sexual assault in order to like find your strength. Because if we're talking about Felicity, her power is strength, right? Anna's song. Felicity is strength. Gemma is hope. Those are their powers. And Gemma's actual, magic power too but felicity is also good with a bow and arrow and she's willing to like go for the kill always i just don't feel like you have to have been sexually assaulted in order for that to happen
0: i think you hit the nail on the head in the sense that it's not like any of the characters reactions to what happens feels from an outside perspective at the very least like bad representation or outside the possibility of the realm of happening or anything it's really just the fact that it felt like it was used as a means to an end kind of carelessly and without real plans to unpack what the actual consequences of any of these events are on the characters, which I know might sound a little bit weird considering the fact that you've been talking about the fact that this has been used to explain and justify like aspects of Felicity that people would probably find rough around the edges, but that doesn't actually address consequences of this situation and context around this situation or unpack anything about what was dropped and like it was pretty explicit i would say too with the situation with the admiral and polly maybe this is just because i'm reading this for the first time as an adult reader but the very first time you see the admiral and polly interact there's red flags i knew it was coming as soon as i read that scene it was so fucking obvious and i knew i was gonna hate it too i just i had that gut feeling in it so definitely trigger warnings for the book as well as this you know aspect of our conversation, but considering the fact that the book doesn't go very far because it's YA in certain places, they really didn't hold back with how fucking pedophilic the Admiral is. And on the one hand, I think that that could have been used for good if we had had packed it more. Like, if we had dove into the fact that the Admiral is fucking gross and skeevy and icky and a pedophile. We could have used that really sort of like explicit feeling scene as a way to talk about any of it. But because we didn't, it just felt to me at least kind of gratuitous.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I felt like it was gratuitous. And like the way she described it, Libba Brain was meant to be to give you that subtext because I had completely Felicity's victim of sexual assault experience is so underplayed that I didn't remember it happened at all. Right. And I also got to that scene. and I was like, Oh, wait, oh, wait, is this a thing? Like, I knew there was something up with Polly. I couldn't figure out what and then that happened. There's a scene in which all of the family members are like, Oh, yes, give him a kiss, which is like that right there is especially in today's context, is this idea of children like having to give physical affection to grownups is a big red flag for sexual assault, but also for children not having boundaries and being taught that they're not allowed to have boundaries, which makes them more it makes them more susceptible to sexual assault, because they're less likely to speak out about it, because they're taught that adults deserve physical affection. I think that that was there to give us some sort of subtext of, ooh, this is weird and icky. But I I also think that you're right. In the same way that I felt like the fetishization of Kartik needed to be explicitly stated... This is also something that needs to be explicitly stated. And it kind of is, I feel like, with the Poppy Warrior scene. Like, it is unpacked a little bit more. It's just, yeah, there's no resolution. And we have now an extra... We didn't need to add a small child character for this. If we had even just taken out Polly. Yeah, if we had even just, like, taken her out of the equation and then revealed this, I feel like it could have been done better. Because we have an extra victim with no resolution.
0: And it just feels a lot like shock value. It feels like a lot of it was just put in there for the plot twist, for the shock value. And I think really ended up doing a disservice to Felicity's character growth in this. Because honestly, outside of what we've already talked about with her desire for power and ambition... I don't necessarily know that I have a ton else to say about Felicity. She doesn't have a ton of character growth in this. And what we learn about her backstory is this clusterfuck of stuff that it was used for shock value and shouldn't have been.
1: I would argue that I think she forms a genuine friendship with Anne. And that is growth. Because Felicity is so privileged in many ways that hierarchy to her is something she just takes for granted. And she does believe in it.
0: Yeah, I think that that's true to a certain extent. I think though that the place where it didn't go far enough for me in this book at least and maybe it will in the next book is the fact that so Anne's able to come home with Felicity because Felicity concocts this whole lie about who Anne is essentially and that falls apart at the end and Anne sits there and is like what the fuck like you said that this would be okay and Felicity's essentially like well this is your fault because you went along with it you know (laughs) she throws it right back at her and like on the one hand yeah that's true right Anne could have said no but I think as we've talked about a lot with Anne's character she's a people pleaser her lack of power in life makes it makes her feel like she can't say no especially in contexts where she's trying to make and keep friends and she just wants to be liked and Felicity had more power in this situation because she's the one who knew all of these people, knew how high society worked, and kind of just used Anne as her plaything a little bit. And ultimately, I agree with you that a more genuine friendship did grow, but there's still problematic aspects with how Felicity uses her privilege and power in her friendships that I still don't think has really been totally addressed yet.
1: Yeah, I think it's hard for me to talk about the places where I noticed it without giving direct spoilers, so... Hopefully next episode. (laughs) Let's move on to Anne. How do we see power for Anne this episode? I think she gets a taste of power this time. And we see her really step away, I think, from that idea of just being a weakling. There's some moments in which she is the bravest out of Felicity and Gemma. When they go underground, when they go on the subway, Anne is the only one that's willing to do it. And like, there's a moment in which she is brave enough to talk to Essentially like Felicity's governess. I don't, I don't know. It's like a maid that keeps tabs on Felicity and goes against Felicity's will and is nice to the governess or maid, whatever she is. I think that once Anne is given power, we get to see the type of person that she would be if she had power, which I think in the first book, I kind of felt like she would be just like all the other girls. But now we get to see that because of her experiences, she is a more empathetic person. Sometimes she is more brave and she gets to be more of a protagonist this time around. But also then it's all yanked
0: from her. (laughs) 100% to all of that I do think something interesting too is that Anne really to me becomes a lot more of a 3d character for all of the things that you just said but also because you know Gemma and Felicity have their differences but in a lot of ways they are very similar they have similar thoughts about strength and like standing up to people and privilege and Anne, because of her up bringing because of her background has different strengths and we get to see her in this book i think is less of a weakling than we did in the first book because we get to see those strengths play out and it's not just with the singing it's also with with the subway and things like that with being a more empathetic person but she still has those different set of values too right like there's a moment in the tunnels in the realms where she's fucking freaking the fuck out and Gemma and Felicity have to like sort of shepherd her along so to speak but I think that that was actually good and useful because I appreciated the fact that having power sort of like you said didn't just mold her into being like Felicity and Gemma and she was able to find more of her strengths but privilege and power the brief taste that she had of it didn't morph her into being someone unrecognizable I do think, though, that having said that, I still wish she had a little bit more agency. When she's kidnapped by the nymphs at the end of the book, I felt very much like, of course, it was fucking Anne. Uh, of course, this is the person that we're going to put in a place where she's really vulnerable and nymphs are going to try and steal her skin. It couldn't have been Felicity, you know, like it had to be the person that we've seen previously have issues with this kind of strength which isn't necessarily a bad thing but I do think it could have been more interesting if a different character was taken and we got to see Anne sort of contend with a little bit more of a traditional hero role. I think it could have added more nuance to both her being thrust into that role and to one of the other girls being forced to be put in peril a little bit. Not that I want to see like bad things happen or anyone be victims but like this is a book about magic creatures who want to hurt you. Somebody, somebody's somebody got to be and I think it could have been more interesting if Felicity had been taken by the nymphs or Gemma because we always see them be painted as sort of like the strong saviors. Felicity because of the bow and arrow and Gemma because of the magic.
1: I get that. I think probably at a lower level than what you're thinking about. I read it though as satisfying that Anne was the one taken because then Anne gets to be the damsel in distress and in a lot of ways she's taking over Pippa's role in this novel and that like she is the belle of the ball even though it's not authentic she gets to have that and the nymphs stole her because they love her skin and her seeing and I think for Anne that is more of that's what she wants she wants to be the damsel who is saved more so than a hero character because that's what society tells her is the ultimate role for womanhood.
0: I can see that and I can appreciate that. I feel like for me the real kicker for all of this was the fact that Ultimately, Anne saves the day with the nymphs because her singing voice allows everyone to like break free. But I think I just felt frustrated that she still had to be prompted to that by Gemma and Felicity and by the Gorgon who had to sit there and be like, sing, you need to keep singing, you need to keep singing. And I think that for me, I just wanted that moment to come from inside of Anne rather than from like these external forces and external factors. It's just a personal preference, but I think I probably would have found that to be a little bit more empowering, rather than (laughs) Gemma and Felicity continuing to sort of be the bosses in that way, and Anne's just kind of a, a tool that they have to use, which is a cold and unfeeling way of looking at it. But I don't think it's necessarily a bad reading of what went down either.
1: No, and I think in some ways that that's sort of how Felicity and Gemma view Anne. They view her as lesser than them. They view that friendship as lesser, I think, too, to a certain extent. She is the pity friend. And yeah, she's poor and we feel bad for her and we want to help her. But like, she's just not as an exciting as exciting of a, of a character. And they, they aren't as enthralled with her as they
0: are with each other. I think not to bring things too far back to Kartik, but I do think that we see a little bit of a philosophical connection conundrum here when we think about Anne and Kartik because when Gemma has the realization that she can't be with Kartik because he's Indian it's partially from a place of self-preservation but I did read it mostly as being out of concern for him and his safety and recognizing the fact that like he's the one who would be in danger here should that relationship move forward. I think that Gemma in some ways paints some of that same mentality onto Anne in the sense that like, well, we're of different classes. So if I'm too nice to Anne, if I get too close to Anne, Anne's going to be the one who gets hurt. And there's not enough nuance in Gemma's little pea brain to think about the differences between those two circumstances and relationships and the ways in which they differ. Rather this kind of philosophy ends up just kind of getting painted over anyone that Gemma views in whatever circumstances having different kinds of privilege than she does or less privilege than she does in context. And I'm hoping that we get over that hump in the next book, but I guess we'll see. I have a lot of hopes for this next. I really think we're almost there. Well, because, like, like we were saying earlier, like with the first book, I was so frustrated with so much. And not that this book was perfect, but it did at least begin to address the things that I wanted to see it addressed besides the poor handling of sexual violence. So I'm hoping that the third book's going to do it. It's a lot of expectation for one
1: book. I mean, I know it's like 500 something pages, Maggie, but
0: it's like almost 900 pages, bro. It's long. <laughs> Whoa. Do you want to talk about Pippa really briefly before we move on to Gemma?
1: Oh, yeah. I forget that Pippa's still a character because she's dead. Sorry, Pip.
0: <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. So Pippa's whole thing is like, she's dead. She's ditched the knight, who she ostensibly stayed for, which is kind of interesting. And now she's really just clinging on to whatever power she has left which is like being a ghost and convincing herself that she's not going to become corrupted. And throughout the book, I think Libba Bray tries to paint her as kind of a red herring. Like you don't really know what's happening with her, except for the fact that she's doing some weird things like low-key sacrificing animals and then eating them while her, wi- while her eyes glaze over white, which like concerning. <laughs> but Pippa's relationship, I think, to power really shifts in this novel because of the fact that the only power she has left is the fact that she exists Is a conscious mind and has knowledge, more knowledge about the realms than Gemma does for a really long time because she lives there full time. And that's actually a source of tension for Gemma with her and Pippa, at least at the beginning of the book. I feel like some of it gets resolved a little bit as we move forward. And Gemma's aware of her really complex issues with Pippa and like jealousy and things like that, at the very least, more self aware about it than she was in the first book. But I think when we're talking about knowledge as power, Pippa is the expression of that here. Because knowledge is all she has left of how the realms work, of who all of these people are, of what the, is going on with the magic. That's it. That's what she's got.
1: <laughs> she's not even a body anymore. No, she doesn't. We also see Pippa align herself, which isn't, I, I don't think it's really a character change or character growth at all. But like, we do see her align herself with the most powerful at, towards the end, which makes sense because... She aligned herself with Felicity while she was alive. And Felicity was always the most powerful. So like she doesn't, she's always going to act from a place of self-preservation and where she's going to get the most power for herself.
0: Yeah, but I think that especially in this second book, we do see that in a little bit more empathetic light. And I think also in the first book, right? Like she does that because she has such a lack of control. In the first book, it's about her marriage and her relationship with her body, with her epilepsy, and how that's viewed as being such a blight by society at this time. And in this book, it's because she doesn't even have a body to contend with and she has very little control of what's going on in the realms. She doesn't even have control over whether she can see her friends. She just has to wait for them to show back up. So I think that at the very least, the idea of the fact that she's aligning herself for power for self-preservation, it's at the very least like an empathetic take. I can understand how, as a person who feels like they have very very little control over what's happening in their life and with their body or not having a body that like you would want to take control of your circumstances in any way that you could which doesn't necessarily justify some of the poor decisions i think that she makes but at the very least i can understand them and empathize with
1: them i get that all right do we want to talk about Gemma?
0: Yeah, I don't know that I have a ton to say about her that we haven't sort of already broken down with the other characters because she is the main character of the novel and we see everything through her perspective. But Gemma's real growth here is in I think finally assessing situations for herself and coming to her own conclusions. In the first book she's so influenced by her mom and the order and her weird relationship that was happening with Kartik and the the Rakshana that like she was sort of just being pulled a bunch of different ways about what was true what wasn't and what to believe. And in this book I think she took a lot more power and a lot more knowledge from the fact that like she could discover things for herself and make her own conclusions. And she was wrong sometimes, right? Like she was wrong about who Cersei was and her decisions ended up with poor outcomes although I would still argue no consequences necessarily she was able to take I think her own (laughs) her own brain almost is a little bit more power than she did in the first book and let herself be manipulated a little bit less because she felt more confident in her own ability to make decisions
1: Yes, I agree. I think that she definitely was able to be, well, I mean, she was manipulated in big hard time by Miss Moore. I think this idea of knowledge is power plays a big role here because Gemma is the person with the most power and she steps up into that role more this book than she did previously because she ends up being the high priestess she also gets a lot more bossy about like how the magic is used and with her friends and she ends up being the person that people turn to they're like okay this is your mission like she is the hero now before she was not necessarily okay being the chosen one now she's like alright this is my responsibility the temple is my priority I'm going to do this but that idea of I want to talk about Nell for a second I don't know if this actually relates forgive me you guys it's been a long day but Nell is an interesting character if we're looking at it through Foucault's theory because Nell has very little power and is dismissed for being mad but also has a lot of power because she's the only person who knows where the temple is and Gemma is able to recognize that but she also has these competing also kind of powerless figures because they're girls who were who were killed and murdered when they were young telling her other tell, giving her another path towards her mission and so i think the big thing for Gemma is like you said assessing and learning and growing and being able to determine where power should go for herself but also I think what I would like to see in the next novel and I have not a lot of memory of what actually ends up happening (laughs) what I would like to see is for her to figure out how to distribute this power in a better way and for her to really start learning how to better interact with people in positions of differing power from her and And learning how to give them equitable
0: treatment. (laughs) I agree. I agree. And I think to your point about Nell, what we see with knowledge in this novel is that knowledge is only power if you're able to act on that knowledge. And Nell can't. She's trying her best. She's trying to let Gemma know what's happening. But she can't because she has been fucked with by Miss Moore and is then sacrificed by Miss Moore. She's caged is what she
1: says because Nell ends up dying. Another spoiler alert, Gemma ends up killing her and Nell ends up thanking Gemma because the caged bird must be free.
0: Which is like a really heavy handed metaphor the entire time because there's a caged parrot in Nell's room named Cassandra, but- okay. (laughs) Cassandra, who is also a fortune teller and no one believes her. But like, I do think that that's the key point, right? Is that it's not just having knowledge that makes you powerful. It's being able to take action and utilize that knowledge that ultimately gives you power. And I think that's what we see happen in Gemma's interactions with Nell, especially as Gemma's starting to glean more knowledge from her and figure out what's happening. Nell isn't the most powerful character, even though for a lot of the novels she's one of the quote-unquote good guys that knows the most.
1: Okay. Yeah, I agree. Is there anything else we want to talk about with Jenna?
0: I don't know. I mean, she has this weird thing going on with Simon, who's the boy who like started kissing her wrists without consent, which doesn't sound like that big of a deal. I think when you, when you say it like that, but the scene was rapey. It was, it was no go.
1: He took off her gloves, which was like undressing. She was drunk. He was the one who got her drunk. He persuaded her to go alone with him, which was a big no-no back in those days. Young woman had to always be chaperoned. Any unmarried woman, even married woman had to be chaperoned.
0: And he did kiss. kiss he kissed the wrists.
1: Yeah, and she was like, no, I don't want this heavy petting. And it kept on persisting until she had a vision. And then she felt bad about herself because she was like, oh, no, I ruined it. He's not going to think I'm pretty anymore.
0: Yeah, I... Gemma had this weird thing going on throughout the entire novel where suddenly she was very, very obsessed with how she looked and whether she was desirable, which like on the one hand relatable, I think to teen girl, especially because it it, funnily enough came from uh, this insecurity came from a stash of magazines that was under Anne's bed. But on the other hand, I don't know that it necessarily added a lot to her character or the plot. It just felt kind of thrown in there to me sometimes.
1: I felt like it was relatable and this was something that carried over from the beginning because of her jealousy towards Pippa and even Felicity. Gemma, yes, has a lot of privilege, but also we have to break down the fact that Gemma, by many, I mean, she's a witch, so like, she would be burned. (laughs) She has visions, which means that people would call her crazy. She grew up in India, which is also, at this time, a weird, like, if you're not in motherland England, there were some weird class restrictions and social restrictions, even though you're white and from England, because she grew up in a colony, essentially. She also has a father who's addicted to opium and her mom's that like all of these things go against her in the social structure in social class so that's part of why it's like oh I can be a part of this she felt in some ways almost as though this was this world was as inaccessible to her as it was to Anne and now she gets to be in the fold of the world and see what it would like be like to be a normal girl.
0: No, I totally understand that part. I just think specifically the part where she looks at the magazines and is suddenly like really self-conscious of how pretty or not pretty she is felt kind of thrown in. I think partially because all of that in and of itself is great character development. And it sort of felt like to me, adding in the kind of extra insecurities about her looks specifically like sure not baseless like she is jealous of pippa she is jealous of felicity for their looks it, it rang a little false for me <laughs> like she's got so many it just it just felt tossed in and i didn't really know how i felt about it especially because we've seen her the entire time be a desirable character to other people like kartik and simon is you know clearly chasing after her as well
1: in this book, but not in the first
0: I mean, wasn't the first book. It
1: wasn't really, though. She didn't know that. We didn't know that for sure.
0: I don't know. I thought it was kind of obvious. But I'm just saying that one specific aspect, I think, didn't quite drive with me. I think especially because Anne is somebody who had a lot of insecurities about her looks because she really didn't meet with the beauty standards of the time. And Gemma had very little patience for that aspect of Anne and very little sympathy and empathy. And so to me, it just felt a little bit bullshit to like add that aspect into. Relatable, sure. I think that lots of teenage girls go through that phase. Lots of adult women struggle with that as well, like not meeting beauty standards. It just felt a little thrown in because from what we had known beforehand, like Gemma kind of does meet the beauty standards. Blonde hair, blue eyes, thin. She's too tall, apparently, but...
1: Red hair. Red hair was not an okay thing for many, many long periods of time.
0: Fair enough. Red hair. But like, no, in a a lot of ways, like she did meet the beauty standards of the time.
1: Yeah, she's not, she's never called plump like Anna's. Or plain Anna's. Poor Anne. They're so mean to goddamn Anne. I hate how Anne is depicted in this book.
0: I do too. They're like so mean to her. Anyways, I think that was the last thing
1: I had to say. About that. I also feel like as a young girl reading it, it's unhealthy to like have people talk about another woman that way. Anyway, okay. Are we? Do we? Do we want to evaluate whether or not this was a feminist book?
0: Sure. Can you go first?
1: I think, I mean, we get kind of a happy ending. We don't know what next book's going to look like. It's Girls with the Power. Gemma is creating a new world order. So I think, I think it is a neoliberal (laughs) white feminist book. That is my explanation. Do I want to add nuance to that? Not really. I don't
0: know if I think that this book is feminist. This is really coming solely from just my personal feelings about feminism, I think. But I really feel like because the book handles sexual violence, so poorly, in my opinion, it really strips some of the credibility of other aspects of the book that could be seen as feminist. And that's just a personal thing for me because of that I really feel like I wouldn't I mean like I would if I would ever recommend this book to a younger reader I would really have to sit down with them beforehand and be like there are things in this book that are not painted in a good light and that aren't okay and like you need to know that you have bodily autonomy and that you can come to adults and tell them when something is wrong and I feel like if I would have to have that conversation with a young girl who I was going to give this book to to me it just it, it doesn't ring as feminist because of that. I wouldn't necessarily go so far to say that it's anti-feminist just because it poorly handles one topic, but I don't think that I can like comfortably say that it's a feminist book. And if I did, I would definitely give it all of the disclaimers that you did as well, where it's like very neoliberal and very white feminist.
1: I think it's hard because there's so many different types of feminisms, right? And because we are just people, we're each defining feminism for ourselves and that evolves. I think that for me, I mean, I was a young girl who had read it, right? And I feel like I've been pretty good. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I could have been better. I don't know. I feel like I was able to determine for myself and probably would have been able to determine at 11 or 12 too, that that wasn't okay, based off of the way that this was depicted. But also, there's, I don't know, I still think if we're painting broad stroke feminism, I don't think that neoliberal white feminism is generally very nuanced. And I think that a lot of it ends up being inherently oppressive. And so for me, I would say that. And and also, there's still just the love for this series. I just love a good, you know, fantasy where the girls win. So like, I think That in of itself can be feminist and it still probably exists within the world of what we call feminists, but I don't think it's a good depiction of feminism and I don't think that it truly gets at what feminism aims to get at, which is equitableness, right? Like it kind of does if we're just looking at gender, but as we've discussed on this podcast ad nauseum, you can't just look at sex and gender in order to like really create an equitable world for sex and gender because there are too many other power structures at play.
0: I get you. I think that's all a very fair thought process. I just, I can't do it. In in my heart of hearts, like I can't, and I do think though also that like just because I don't think that this book is feminist, I I think I would still stand by the idea that a great terrible beauty is probably feminist, and I think that the third book still has the potential to be it to be feminist. It's really just this middle book I think goes a little off message <laughs> for me. Anyways, what's our homework this week?
1: Okay, so Maggie and I have been having a lot of discussions a little bit about power because our episode last week was edited by the one. Wonderful, Kevin McKinnon. And I when I was in a position of power had to because I am a woman and was a very young woman at the time, adopt a very much bossy attitude, which sometimes I have discovered now when using it with my friends on work projects makes people sad and feel insecure. <laughs> So I think that I, and right now I am adopting this bossy attitude for work, which is working and people seem to be fine with. Yeah, I don't know. So I think I'm going to evaluate the, the way that I utilize power and how to change it for different people. Because I think for me, if I'm like doing a project or something in order to communicate effectively, because... I'm so used to being dismissed, I have to be very blunt. And when you're with friends, especially that bluntness is too much for them, I think sometimes. Yeah, so I have to very much work with that.
0: Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, I think it's always really difficult to do projects like what Harmony and I are doing currently, because we're very much friends and friends first, but we do take the podcast seriously and treat it as a semi professional endeavor at the very least. And so like, there's always a weird line when you end up working. There's It's like a weird thing to navigate when you end up working with your friends in that sense.
1: Yeah. So I just, I need to, I feel like maybe I'm better at adapting. Maybe I'm nicer when I'm with other people because I do think a lot about power. And so maybe I'm a better, I'm better at getting my thoughts across, but also because it's more natural to take up that leadership role. But when you're in a friendship situation, like you don't always need to be the leader. And I just de facto leader whenever I feel like something needs leading, which is probably like, I don't know, a trauma response as a kid or something like, oh, no, things aren't getting done. I have to step up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I get you. I get you. I think it's just also hard, with like things like this, because everyone has their idea of how things should be like done. Correctly. Everyone has a different idea of of what makes a podcast sound good ultimately as the final product. So it's also about like managing those expectations. Anyways, I think that that's a, a really useful thing to think about. I actually similarly am thinking about power at work specifically because I am suddenly somebody's boss, which has never happened to me before. And I think I'm going to be like a good manager ultimately. But I will say it has thrown me into a little bit of crisis mode. I've never done this before. And now I'm going to be expected to do this. And one thing no one teaches you in school is how to be a good manager. It's one of those weird things where it's like being a good manager is really hard and I think requires a lot of skill sets that no one ever bothers to train you for. They just kind of assume that because you've been managed before in your lifetime, you know what makes a good and a bad manager and you can just automatically make that work for yourself. And it takes a lot more work. Than that, so not that I think I've necessarily made any like missteps so far. This is a very, very new thing, but because of that, I'm definitely reflecting a lot about power in the workplace and how to manage situations like equitably and people equitably.
1: That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, what are you reading?
0: I am reading *The House and the Cerulean Sea* by T.J. Clune and *White Ivy* by I think Susie Yang.
1: What are you reading? I'm actually not reading anything right now because I finished the Diviners novel, uh, King of Crows, I think it's called, a few days ago and then have been trying to catch up on this book, so.
0: So next week we are reading the last book in this series, which is called The Sweet Far Thing. And that book is hella long, so we will try and be more concise than we were this week. (laughs) See you guys
1: next
2: time. Bye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel-girls-book-club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at RebelGirlsBookClub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by the gays. See you soon and remember to read rebelliously.